Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, we begin today with the first sermon of All Souls Anglican Church of New Jersey in our new lectionary in the book of the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, particularly verses 1 through 9. You'll find it on page 791 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. You'll also find the outline to the sermon on the back page of your weekly bulletin if you'd like to take some notes. Now, Haggai must address the problem of being completely overwhelmed by events so that human sinfulness is stirred to act in ways that disable and defeat the people of God. And we know what that's like, don't we? The very fact that we live in a world that has fallen means that we are victims of suffering from forces beyond our control, and we are the perpetrators of suffering to others as our basic rebellion against God manifests itself time and time again in sinful behavior. It can get so bad that we can ask ourselves, well, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved after all? My life is a mess. I have nothing to show for it. It's one step forward, and it seems it's always two steps back. Well, this is precisely the problem that Haggai must address, the problem of fallen human beings. You see, it's almost 50 years since the destruction of Jerusalem and the distress in Lamentations chapter 3 that we examined the last time we were together, most of the generation that had been carried into exile had died. The generation born during the exile only knew Babylon as their home. So rather than joining in a mass return to Jerusalem, most of those exiles stayed in Babylon. Or they stayed down in Egypt. They chose financial security and comfort that they had built up during the exile. They remained huge Jewish communities almost up to the Islamic invasion in the 8th century. Only a small percentage, just 50,000 exiles, chose to return. And when they arrived, they faced a mountain of difficulties. As for their homes and land, well, imagine moving into a house and yard that's been abandoned for 50 years. I mean, where do you start? As for people, there was a class struggle. As working Jews, working lower class, peasant Jews, left behind in the exile, had property that belonged to the middle and upper classes that had gone into exile and now returned. And just like 
sinful man today, the tussle over the wealth of that property lasted over a century. As for local government, well, nobody was happy to have this headache in their administration, so the Persian bureaucrats and foreigners who had settled in the land because of the Persian Empire remained obstructive, abusive, and unhelpful. And as for generations, well, the older generation is in deep grief being reminded for what was lost and how they lost it through their rebellion and sinfulness and idolatry, and the young who knew none of this and just wanted to get on with the job. So what we saw back in October when we studied Jeremiah's distress in Lamentations chapter 3 still doggedly hangs on as the returning refugees face what by any measure are human difficulties that are at the best of times manageable, but at the worst of times are impossible in this group. So in order to understand why Haggai exhorts the people the way he does, you must understand the depth of their psychological and physical distress. We must pay close attention to how he does this. I mean, we know the exact date of Haggai's sermon. It was on October 17th in 520 B.C. Now, what's significant about that date is that it falls on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, when they had been living out in tents and temporary shelters to remind them of their wanderings in the wilderness. And most importantly here, of God's continuing presence, blessing, and provision for the people of God. The Feast of Tabernacles was also extremely significant for another reason. It was the date when Solomon's temple itself was dedicated, the one that lay in ruins before them. It was at this time that it was dedicated to the pure worship of the Lord. It was the time when the Ark of the Covenant was carried up into Zion, placed into the Holy of Holies, covered completely in gold, and the glory of the Lord descended on the temple. And this is why Haggai begins here. He does not tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. He addresses the problem directly. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? It is as nothing in your eyes. Notice he's saying this house. He's standing there among the rubble. Perhaps on the top of one of the huge blocks of stone tossed here and there. We can understand as they looked at this, can't we? We can imagine how they started to see the extent of the challenges ahead, just to clear the land and make it ready to lay the foundation, testing the stonework and the walls themselves. A 50, 60-year ruin before them, they have no mechanical aids, no wealth, no resources from other nations. And so they're poor in the world's eyes and they can see nothing, nothing at all. 
And so they grieve and they mourn as they stand in the present and look back to the glories of the past. In Ezra chapter 3, he tells us that you couldn't tell in the crowds the difference between the sounds of joy and the sounds of mourning because the people shouted both. You couldn't distinguish one from the other. You see, my dear friends, they were focused on what they could see around them. They had forgotten the character of the God who saved them, the God who preserved them, the God who made the covenant with their forefather Abraham. And that's exactly where Haggai takes them. Notice the threefold command in verses 4 and 5. Be strong, work, fear not. They're all declarations of the Lord. Why? For I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. His commands are grounded in what he's done. The imperatives of his command are grounded in the indicatives of his covenant promise. That he will be their God, they will be his people. And Leviticus tells us that this was the reason for the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was to be a sign to the nations that they were the Lord's. They were his servants whom he brought out of Egypt and made to dwell in tents in the desert. He's reiterating in the Feast of the Tabernacles God's covenant with Abraham when their forefathers themselves lived in tents. When the Lord God passed through the cut animals of Genesis 15, binding himself utterly to Abraham and his descendants forever. As I walk among you and will be your God, you will be my people. Do you know when you hear those words again, I will be with you, do not be afraid, I am with you? They're the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 6. He says it almost precisely the same way. If you check the Septuagint of the Old Testament, and then you go to Mark 6, you find that the structure is similar. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now why is Jesus saying this to his disciples? Well, they're terrified. They're in the midst of the storm in the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000. As the waves are swamping the boat, Jesus walks out to them on the waves and says, Do not be afraid. I am with you. And that's the principle we must learn. That the personal presence of the Lord, guaranteed in his word, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, gives courage and determination and the conviction that he will never permit his purposes to fail. Even if you are standing among the ruins, whether it's Solomon's temple, a denomination, or your own lives, in such a way that it seems that the purposes of God are being frustrated, God reminds them again in his word and assures them by his Holy Spirit that he will remain in their midst. Do you see it there? My spirit remains in your midst. 
The Hebrew participle is a continuous action that includes both the past and the present. God has been present even in apparent disaster. And he made his presence known the moment they repented. But how then were they to gain the assurance that they sought that God was indeed truly with them in the Holy Spirit? Haggai turns their minds again to the truth of God's word, his covenant, his covenant promise. He then turns them to the sign, the covenant sign in the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the entire scripture is a testimony to this principle. Word and sign, word and sign. This is why we gather here today. The preached word of God confirmed in the sign of the Lord's Supper. This is where all those who are cast down must turn. You must fortify yourselves with a pure knowledge of God from the pure word of God so that when distresses come, you may discern what is of the Lord and what is a lie of Satan himself. So Haggai does this. He says, think on the Lord, think on his character, and therefore he will accomplish his will. And that's where he takes them. Now the purpose of God is revealed. He hasn't finished his work. So how are we to make sense of the rest of Haggai's exhortation, the ground shaking, the wealth being poured into the nation? We must learn what is called the prophetic perspective. What is the prophetic perspective? That what is asserted by God through the prophet has a present fulfillment, but also contains a future consummation present fulfillment, and a future consummation. You can think of it like this. Imagine you're standing on a mountaintop. And as you stand there, you can see in the distance, mountaintop, 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 all the way through to the horizon's edge. But what you cannot see are the valleys that lie in between. You cannot even guess the distance between yourself and a peak three or four down toward the horizon from the place which you stand. And that is the prophetic perspective. They can switch from past remembrance to present reality to future consummation in the same way that you can take in every hilltop toward the horizon. And so, in Haggai's prophetic perspective... It all turns on that repeated phrase, I will fill my house with glory. I will fill my house with glory. He takes and reminds them that the glory was seen as it came down on the tabernacle. But the word glory can also mean wealth and riches. The wealth and riches of Solomon's temple in ruins around them. But then the future consummation immediately brings us from that time into the time of Christ, where the glory of God is spread throughout the entire earth. We're looking at another mountaintop. The visible presence of the God, of God himself, is made flesh in Christ, 
presented in the temple to Simeon and to Anna, and then fulfilled in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the church of God, as you and I, as living stones, make up the temple of God. The wealth of nations is poured into Zion. And it stays there and continues to grow from there until the end of the age when the temple comes down from heaven and God dwells among men. And so we can see it even in our own time. Just like those exiles who stood looking back to their past with the hope of the future consummation in the Messiah to come, you and I stand looking back at the work of Christ accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, the comfort in knowing that in his session at God's right hand that he intercedes for us and has placed our enemies under his feet, and how Paul assures us in Romans that we too will have the enemies of God placed under our feet. And one day we look forward to that great consummation to come when God himself dwells among men forever. Can you see the comfort that we draw from God's word today? Our inheritance is not simply land or a city, or even in the end, just a new earth. It's all that God has done for us in our salvation. That God has prepared salvation for us, and he has guaranteed it in his covenant with Abraham, for we are Abraham's children. So my friends, how can we avoid grieving when circumstances in this fallen world turn against us, when sin can wound us so? We must remind ourselves of the word of God and the truth of the gospel of God. When you understand the gospel, you're always shocked. You're always deeply disturbed by what it reveals. The deeper your awareness of your sinfulness, the deeper your awareness of God's holiness, the amazing reality of the cross grows ever larger. You learn how it demands more than you ever thought and offers more than you ever dreamed. And that's what it means to grow. The deeper your understanding, the more you have grown the more you are ready for when difficult times come. Rather than seeing it in terms of judgment and punishment, you realize it's your father's tender care in discipline, encouraging you, exhorting you, moving you to trust in him. Because God does not want to leave you indifferent. For those who are indifferent have never understood the gospel at all. You see, in the end of the day, my dear friends, our Father is not interested in adjusting our performance. Our Father is interested in drawing you close to him so that you may live in his presence, holy and blameless, in love. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. 
There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.